Please stand for the reading of today's Old Testament lesson from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, and our gospel lesson from the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Then the little children were being brought to him in order that he may lay hands on them and pray. The disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. And he laid his hands on them and went on his way. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is so appropriate for Judy Norris to read that scripture today. Judy, who was for many years director of Christian education here, and hearing your voice read those words has deep meaning to many of us. And so, Judy, we're grateful to you. To all of you who are here on this last Sunday of the month of September, it's hard to believe that next Sunday, October the 1st, will be what we call our traditional World Communion Sunday. And so we'll be communing at the table of grace with Christians from around the world next Sunday, and we look forward to that special time. Uh, thanks to all of our musicians. Thank you for beautiful music, and to see this intergenerational, multi-generational choir is a wonderful thing. And to Debbie Jewell. Uh, Debbie Jewell is, in fact, a jewel uh, in this church. She and Bob mean so much to us. And for your witness today, uh, I've heard the witness, I've heard her talk about this three times and I've wept every time. It's a beautiful story, beautiful people, and we're grateful. I, I find myself more and more so thankful for a church that gets it and that does something about it. Thank you, and thank you to all of our folks who were part of the refugee conference yesterday. Um, I also want to tell you that, speaking of getting it, I told a story last week about a woman from Pennsylvania named Joyce Karen, who's been worship, worshiping with us online for some time, and I read her letter to you uh, last week, and I bet we had a dozen people come out the narthex after the service and say, please give me her information. And so she wrote me this week that she has actually been barraged by your love through the mail. So keep it coming, we're grateful. And this is the power of a witness, that whenever you tell or share with someone else what God is doing in your life, it really does have a ripple effect, Debbie, as you've said, and God uses it in marvelous ways. And I have to say, as a pastor, uh, it is uh, such a joy to see that, to celebrate that, to experience that with you. I'm going to try to be quick today, which is not easy for me. I'll take all of the, uh, all of the exits that I can to get us to the benediction today. 
but I want to share with you, uh, last week, we were in our second week of the series called Together, Ani, that you've mentioned to us. And last week, we talked about the fact that first and foremost, we are called together to worship. Praise is our native tongue. Contrary to popular thought, it is not, com- it is not complaint. It is not lamenting, although there's a place for that. Praise is our native language. In fact, we borrowed a line from an Old Testament professor uh, from Decatur, Georgia, Walter Brueggemann, who said, worship is an act of sanity in a world on the edge of insanity, whereby we are reclothed in our right minds. I feel that when we worship. In fact, we even uh, referred to our Presbyterian friends from the Westminster Confession. They say that the chief end of mankind, the chief purpose of humanity, is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. I hope you enjoy the presence of God. I want to take a turn today, and I want to mention to you that I think there is a second objective to which we as a body are called and that is to the task of spiritual formation. If you go outside from the nave and go into the narthex, you'll see our, you'll see our mission statement above the grand staircase, which says, make disciples of Christ for the transformation of the world. And if you know the New Testament, you know that this mission statement is based on Matthew 28, what we call the Great Commission, where Jesus co-missions with his disciples to send us out into the world. But did you know that the word disciple literally means student? The Greek is mathetes. It means student, learner, or follower. And we talked about several weeks ago in August that one of our core values as a church is that we be teachable all of our lives. If you've ever run into a person who is beyond teachability, it's not a pretty thing to see. In fact, the truth is that an unteachable disciple is an oxymoron. I remember the old basketball coach, John Wooden, who said, when you're through learning, you're through. And that's true. But the word disciple is not just a noun. It's a verb. We're called not only to be disciples, but we're actually called to disciple disciples. We're called to teach and disciple others who are seeking Christ and those who are not. It was Dallas Willard, who was professor of philosophy at University of Southern Cal and a fine Christian gentleman who wrote a book called The Great Omission in which he said, Spiritual formation is the, is the process whereby the innermost being of a person takes on the quality and character of Jesus. And it is a process. I believe from the scripture that this process begins with our ears, not with our mouth. It begins with hearing. I didn't say it. Paul said it, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word for hearing, interestingly enough, in the Hebrew language is shema, which means not only to hear, but to obey. To hear and to obey. 
Deuteronomy 6, Judy, that you read from, contains what we call the Jewish confession of faith, which Jews call the Shema because it begins with the word hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, that's monotheism, no other gods, and you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That kind of hearing is not just a physical thing, it's a spiritual thing. It's hearing that leads to doing. In fact, Acts chapter 2, the Pentecost story, tells us that when the crowd in Jerusalem heard the gospel through the preaching of Peter, that they were cut to the heart, and that they ran to Peter and said, what must we do? They never said, how should we feel? They said, what are we supposed to do? And he told them, you need to repent. You need to do a 180. Turn from the direction you're going, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and receive the Holy Spirit. And they did. Such hearing leads to action. It leads to obedience. I love the story from 1 Samuel. You remember the counsel that Pastor Eli gave to the boy Samuel? Samuel was serving in Shiloh in the tabernacle. He was an acolyte or an intern in the tabernacle. And one night as he was trying to go to sleep, he heard his name called, Samuel, Samuel. Thinking that it was Pastor Eli, he ran to Brother Eli and said, did you call me? He said, no, it wasn't me. And it happened three times, Samuel, Samuel. Finally, Brother Eli did the math and figured out what was happening, that God was calling this young man. And so he said to him, son, the next time you hear the voice say, speak, Lord, your servant is hearing. Now, most of us don't roll that way. Most of us, if you're like me, says, shush, Lord, your servant is speaking. By the way, the name Samuel, you know what it means in the Hebrew? God has heard. I don't know why it is, but we're often more interested in being heard than hearing. It was Mark Twain who said, if God wanted us to talk more than we listen, he would have given us two mouths and one ear. We're often more interested in being heard. Stephen Covey, everybody's read The Seven Habits, says most people don't listen with the intent to really understand. We listen with the intent to rebut and to reply. Paul Tillich said it like this, the first duty of love is to just listen, to listen. Do you know how much energy it takes to listen? (laughs) There are three keynotes in the Shema. Hearing and obeying is the evidence of love for God. Number two, there's danger in forgetting God, being inattentive or hard of hearing to God. And the third is that enduring faith, if faith is to endure, it has to be transmitted, propagated to the next generation. And in the time I have left, I, I, want, I want to talk about that third point. A major part of our ministry at BMC is simply discipling our children. 
Last week, we, if you were here, you saw we gave them Bibles. We gave to the pre-K and third graders, we gave them Bibles, which I think is perhaps one of the most loving and important things that the body can do for our children. I was crossing over from the early service to the modern service today uh, at the 9.45 hour, and as I was going through the hallways, I saw all these kids who were coming to Sunday school, and they were just so bright-eyed at least until they saw me, but they were very bright-eyed as they were going to their classes. And all of a sudden, it hit me. I I remember so much of my own spiritual formation as a boy in the church. It was because of those third-grade Bibles and because of my Sunday school teachers. And I was looking in the room, and I could see in the past those Sunday school teachers who made space for me. Rex and Ophelia McKinney, George and Peggy Perkins, Lynn and Carol Clapp, Gwen Pullen, Sue Fairley, those names mean very little to you, but they mean the world to me. People who just made space in their lives in whom we saw Jesus. A big part of this campaign involves space for kids, but it's not just physical space that they need. It's relational space. By the way, in the second text, Judy, you read from Matthew 19, that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was making space for kids, which was unusual in the first century for a rabbi to do because little children were the lowest on the totem pole. They were considered unimportant and unnecessary. Even the disciples, when they saw them coming, spoke sternly to them believing that they were a nuisance to Jesus. They're a bother, they're an interruption on his otherwise busy schedule. But Jesus made room. He blessed them, he embraced them. He even said, let the little children come unto me and don't ever stop them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. He even said, unless you become like one of these little ones, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? It means that children know how to receive when we've forgotten. It means that little ones know how to receive without presumption or self-justification. They just still have this natural sort of trust and love. Holly Fisher One of our women is leading our confirmation classes for sixth graders, and she, along with some of you, adults and friends in faith, they're discipling our 11 and 12-year-olds in in the basics of of our Christian faith. And on November the 12th, they're going to stand here at the altar and make a decision to follow Jesus, make a profession of faith to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord. Dallas Willard, in that same book, makes an indicting comment when he says that most problems in contemporary churches can be explained by the fact that many members have never actually decided to follow Jesus or that we have received him as Savior, but not really as Lord. Now, I want to be quick to say that transmitting faith, spiritual formation, is not simply the task of the church. It's the task of the home. 
Parents and grandparents, you are the most important spiritual influence in the lives of your kids and grandkids. I want you to listen again to a modern translation of Deuteronomy 6 at this point. Think constantly about the commandments I'm giving you today. This is to parents. Teach them to your children. Talk about them when you're at home or out for a walk at Radnor at bedtime and first thing in the morning. And tie them as a symbol around your wrist and wear them on your forehead and write them on the doorpost of your house. And if you do, even in those seasons when they flee into a far country, as they often do and we do, you will have given them something to come home to. I remember a time in my ministry when I was succeeding as a pastor, but failing as a father. Mid-30s, the kids were young. We were in a growing church. We were building a sanctuary. We were buying property, and I was out four nights a week. I came home late one night, and the light in my son's room was on, and I went in to scold him because he should have been in bed an hour before. And when I came in, he looked at me and said, Dad, where have you been? I said, I've been teaching Bible study. And he looked at me and said, Dad, I hate Bible study. And I realized he didn't hate the Bible. He hated that the, the fact that his father wasn't home. And I suddenly realized that if I didn't get some balance in my life, that my son would grow up holding God hostage for my lack of parenting. He needed me to make space. And with the help of my wife, who is capable of giving me an alarm call, we did it. Made a concerted effort to be at home for dinner three nights, four nights a week. And I remember reading that when families are together eating at a table for three or four nights a week, they tend to stay together. And that same young man who said, I hate the Bible, is standing in Noonan, Georgia, proclaiming the unsearchable riches of Christ, largely because of his mother. I've had privilege to be with a number of people who were facing their final days, and I've never heard a, one of them say, I wish, I wish I could have spent more time at the office because the most important work that you will ever do will be within the walls of your own household. I love the verse, and with this I close, from Paul's second letter to Timothy, where Paul is giving thanks to God for Timothy's faithfulness, but he's giving credit where credit is due. This is chapter 1, verse 5, 2 Timothy. My dear Timothy, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure lives in you. That's our mission statement. <laughs> That's our task, not just for our own children, but sometimes for children who are not our own Spiritual formation begins there as we make space to disciple 
our children. And when we do, hearing and obeying become one and the same. And by God's grace, our children become disciples who disciple to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, may it be so. Amen.